not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all those who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, and the Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations, as a grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword, and all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Joe, for reading. Um, we're at the end of this book of Amos that we've been looking at for um, a few weeks now. I don't know you ever get a re- do you ever get a report uh, come through at uh, work or uh, whatever it is you uh, may do uh, professionally, so to speak, and you, you get the report and you think, okay, can you tell me uh, what, is the, uh, what is the bottom line? What is, can you tell me what the take-home is here in this uh, thing I've got to read? And as we get to the end of the book of Amos, it's been a pretty fierce book of judgment. God's people had lived through a time of reasonable um, uh, prosperity, uh, for a number of years, as we've um, heard, as we've gone along, and they had, they had drifted from the Lord. And Amos has delivered this message uh, going up to the northern kingdom and delivering a message of judgments. And you might well be, if you were the people who were hearing him, say, look, tell us, Amos, you're coming to the end. What is the bottom line? Who is, in particular, who is going to face this judgment? And that is what Amos outlines for us in this last section. He will take us through exactly what the Lord's judgment looks like. We're going to look at his judgment, the Lord's judgment, and his mercy. And Amos is going to tell us just exactly where the dividing line falls, if you like. So the two points that we have, we'll look at how judgment sifts, if you can follow me. Judgment sifts, uh, that that image of a sieve or a sifting that uh, comes later. And we'll look at how mercy provides and how uh, uh, the response that we get um, in the Lord. Um, So let's uh, uh, dive back into the 
uh, passage as we have it. And if you'll see at the start, what he's doing, Amos is saying, uh, there is judgment coming. And if you look at the start and the end of the first section that we have, that judgment, um, this sifting, judgment is coming. Judgment is going to expose those who think they are fine. Judgment is going to land on those who think there isn't any problem and they don't have any problem. Those who think they are fine are really, in, in many ways, focused on themselves. It starts with this phrase, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, in verse 1. Now, you have to pick up an illusion that goes back quite a long time. Many years before, there'd been a king called Jeroboam I, when the kingdom had split into two, the, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And we've heard in this series about the northern kingdom needing to settle and decide upon places that people could go and worship so that they didn't travel down to Jerusalem. And in particular, one king called Jeroboam I had set up a place in, uh, in Bethel and in Dan. And there is, in, if you look it up later in uh, uh, 1 Kings 13, 12 and 13, um, he is stood by the altar. And the king is stood by the altar and he is warned of what he is doing. That as he stands there in this religious ceremony, this is really only about him and his power. He has set up something with the pretense that it is for God's people, the pretense that it is about their worship of the Lord, but it is actually about him and his power and shoring things up. And he starts with that illusion, and if you look at the very end of um, verse 10, um, just glance down, where he says this, this sifting, this judgment is going to land on those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. It's those who think they are fine. Is his, um, is his message. And it just unpacks. If you glance down with me, there are many different ways in which people can say, oh, no, I'm fine, really. Um, the first of which is the religious. So verses uh, 1 and 2, uh, he says, the Lord gives this message, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring, down the, uh, bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away, none will escape. Can you, if you imagine him uh, taking, you know, shaking the tops of these pillars, and imagine the, the, the whole building starting to crumble down on top of us. That's what he's saying to this, uh, these people who are saying, well, I'm fine because I'm in church. My religion uh, means I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm fine because of my place of worship whatever your religion may be. My religion will protect me. I'll be all right. He says, no, it really won't. Uh, And as he goes on, they dig down to the depths below. From there, my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there, I will bring them down. So if if you think it's okay because I'm religious, because I've got a church background, because I go to church, I'll be fine. He says, no, you won't be. But it may be that religion isn't your reason that you think you're fine, uh, Amos says. But if uh, those who think, well, I'll be fine because my, my politics, uh, my geography, my economics will protect me. I'll be all right. Uh, so he goes on. Uh, Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies... There I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Uh, He's saying, do you see, those who might have said to themselves, well, okay, uh, geographically, we will, if things are going to get hard on Israel, we'll we'll leave. Uh, We'll go to a different place. My geography, I'll I'll just, I'll move. I'll move to a a better location. I'll be fine. 
um, or even in, in going into exile. Maybe we'll make an astute political bargain and then we'll get ourselves out of the problems we're in. And Amos says, you can't hide that way. Your politics, your economics, you, perhaps you think you've got the resources to move yourself around. You won't be fine. I will find you, says the Lord. And in fact, he says, verses 5 and 6, he gives us this, this kind of picture, almost standing back. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, touches the earth. It melts. Uh, all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. There's, no, there's nowhere on earth you can go, he's saying, to escape me. Whoever you are, I will find you. And so lastly, um, in verses 7 and 8, he, those who amongst God's people say, well, look, I'll, I'll be fine because my heritage will protect me. My background will protect me. I'm of good stock. I am Church of England. I will be all right. I've got a good background. I will be fine. And he says, no, actually, are you Israelites? Are you not the same to me as Cushites? Uh, did I not bring, I brought Israel up from Egypt. Uh, didn't I also bring the Philistines from Kaftor and the Aramaeans from Kir? What he's saying is that you guys, you, you think your background, you're God's people, whatever it is, and you look to big things like the Exodus and you've got your markers. He says, well, look, everybody else has too. Other nations have got their historical markers. Do you not think I deal with them as well? And you can't rely on your background, on your heritage, on your breeding, whatever it may be. The eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. And so you get this, this sieving, this separating um, in uh, verses 8 and 9. He has this image of a, a sieve. Um, he says, I will not totally destroy the descendants of J- Jacob. We'll come on to that in a moment. For I will give the command, I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. So the sieve, the separation of those, the separation of those who think they are fine and those who really stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm concerned about your view of me. I'm concerned about what you think of me. I'm concerned that I may not have a standing before you. And he's sieving out these two different groups. The essence of what he is targeting here is captured really well by uh, a commentator called uh, Alec Matir, who's a, uh, if you ever, anything he, he writes is, is often worth reading. Um, he, he describes the, the, first, the early part of this as this. He says it's, what they're doing is the throwing of a cloak of religion over a life motivated by the self. So those who are going to church who are relying on their religion, he says, what you're doing is you're throwing this cloak of religion when actually you are really interested in is you. You're throwing a cloak of religion when all you're interested in is you. You're throwing a cloak of, uh, of your heritage when all you're really interested in is you. You throw a cloak of your social standing, your politics, and you call it that, but actually all you're really interested in is you, he says. And the Bible tells us that this is what we're like. The Bible says when you, when you read the Bible through, you'll see it tells us that this is, this is classically what we're like. If you think about a passage like, uh, say, Romans chapter 1, if you've uh, encountered that um, chapter before, the Bible tells us, in a nutshell, we are, we are so in, turned in on ourselves. 
We're so inverted in ourselves that we will take the things of this world and we'll use them as cloaks to protect ourselves. We'll take created things and we'll use them like a cloak to cover ourselves and protect ourselves and tell ourselves we're fine. We'll turn aside from God and we'll take things that he's made and we'll say, this will make me fine. I don't need to worry. I wonder why you came to Manchester. What brought you to Manchester? Why did you, if you moved here, uh, if you came to work here, what brought you uh, to Manchester? Was it to say, I'm the kind of person who can work in Manchester, don't you know? I'm the sort of person... I don't, you know, I'm not out in the sticks somewhere. I'm the sort of person that lives and works in Manchester. Is it a cloak that we draw over ourselves to say, oh, I'm fine. I'm the kind of person, you know, I don't have terrible ideas about things. I'm, I'm forward-thinking. I'm Manchester. Do we draw a cloak over ourselves, our self-image, our self-worth? I'm, I'll be fine. I'm that sort of person. He's saying, look, all of you, the complacency, of telling ourselves this, that is what God is sifting out. Those who think they are fine and those who are aware and realize where they stand before a holy God. And you might be somebody there and you might have that sort of voice in your head that says, well, you know, Paul, that's all very well, but actually I don't have any cloaks like this. Thank you. Um, I don't actually believe there's a God. Um, I, I, I wouldn't consider myself uh, troubled by the need for cloaks uh, to protect myself from anything. I'm not running from anything. I don't believe there's a God. Um, there's a writer uh, called John Gray um, who's written a, a book um, called Seven Types of Atheism. He is an atheist uh, writer. Um, he's a very interesting guy. He sometimes writes for The Guardian. Um, he begins uh, by talking about um, how... To have no God, to think there is no God, um, it causes quite a reaction in people. And he writes and says that actually when you take away God, when you don't don't believe there is any God, actually for many it becomes intolerable. Um, It becomes, life becomes chaotic. It's very hard to know how to uh, supply some meaning. And he writes this, struggling to escape this vision uh, of no God, atheists himself have looked for surrogates of the God they've cast aside. And the chief of those, he says, is the progress of humanity or faith in humanity. And he says, he doesn't use the word cloak, but it's, it's like a cloak. Faith in humanity, he says, makes sense only if it continues ways of thinking that have been inherited from monotheism. Actually, to, to turn aside from God, he says, it actually only makes sense if you, if you follow the patterns and ways of those who believe in God. And actually, your faith in humanity is like a cloak that you draw over yourself to tell yourself, I'm fine. It's interesting coming from uh, an atheist himself. And so the sieve uh, image is there. And the sieve is meant to sort of strike us. And it, I think it is, it, the sieve image is, is quite a concerning one, isn't it? You, you kind of come across this uh, picture of God um, uh, sifting out. Uh, verse 9, uh, 10, I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. So in that instance, you, you want to sieve out and, and the things you don't need and you, you retain the grain. Or alternatively, uh, if you're sieving a soil and you want the good soil to flow through and you, you then you cast aside the pebbles that you, uh, 
that you, you don't need. He's saying, look, I'm, do, I'm doing this dividing work. And this book of Amos is meant to challenge you, the message I've given you through Amos, to divide you. And it will divide you between those who think, no, I don't really need to hear this, I'm fine. And those who think, wow, if I'm really like this, what hope is there? If I'm really like this before the Lord, how can anything be done? If I'm really like this, I'm concerned. And it's that moment, that moment of concern, that moment of, of knowing that we stand before the Lord, that I think is what God is after. That is what God is after. Because in that moment, he pours out and offers out his extraordinary mercy. Uh, if we have a look at the, uh, at the second um, half of this um, passage, um, in that moment, he offers to those uh, sensitive who can sense their need, that is where um, he pours out his mercy. So he says, verse 11, In that day... I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring my people Israel back from exile they will rebuild and the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Um, is there ever a, a passage which slightly wrong foots you with where it's going and how it ends? It's genuinely, you read those last verses and you think, how am I supposed to make sense of them in light of what we've just had? Uh, there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to run, I will find you, says the Lord in the first half. And then you read this and you think, okay, there's something pretty special on offer here. What is he saying and why is he saying it? Do you know the, the, the sieve? The sieve is bad news and good news. The sieve is bad news if you are trying to hide. He's saying, look, there really is nowhere. I will sift you out, I will find you. But the sieve is good news if you think about it for a moment. It is not God saying, I've turned my back on you. It is not God saying, I'm just going to leave you and, and I do not care. The sieve is saying, I am coming to find those who are open to what I offer. The Bible so often presents the Lord throughout uh, uh, the course of its writing as a God who searches after his people. And the sieve is good news for those who realize that they aren't fine and stand naked before the Lord, as it were, and say, look, the cloak is, I realize the cloak doesn't work. I realize the cloak is a, a total pretense. I realize I'm, it, it's doing nothing for me. But when I take it off, I stand here before you, Lord, and where do we go from here? And his reply comes back. If we look through these verses, they respond, if you like, they're anticipating things that we would need and that he will supply. So verse 11, there's four of them that we'll work through briefly. Uh, he says, I will restore David's fallen shelter. To those of us, to those of you who know that they lack someone to follow, that they lack a king, a mediator, here is David's fallen shelter. Now David's fallen shelter, it's an illusion. It's actually a tent. 
Um, it's an allusion to a festival, a, a festival of booths, which is quite a hard word to say. Um, uh, and uh, it's a, a reminder of, of God's people and the king dwelling with them. It actually alludes to that earlier um, uh, festival that Jeroboam was, uh, was warping at, uh, and twisting at the uh, start. And it's saying, look, to you who know that you lack a mediator, a king, one who will dwell with you, who will, as we're told of the Lord Jesus, that he will make his tent, if you like, he will tabernacle amongst us. Those of you who know who lack that, I will supply that for you. Those of you who have been searching over many, many years for an England manager who could somehow be one of his people and yet lead his people. And lo, he has come. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Those of you who, who sense that lack, he says, I will provide it. Those of you who know that you are hostile to God, you can be brought in. So verse 12, he says, So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name. And the remnant of Edom. Edom is it's a shorthand in the Bible for classically hostile to God's people. They were the, they were, they're just a shorthand for enemies of God's people. And he's saying, do you know, they too will become part of God's people. And you know, if you go into the New Testament, again, look it up later, Acts 15. It is striking. When in Acts, if you know the story of the early church, when they come to the point where the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews are brought into the people, they quote these verses from the end of Amos and say, do you know, it's fitting because God said people who were hostile to him could become a part of him. And if you're somebody who knows that for all of your life or recently you have been hostile to the Lord, he says, I can, I can bring you in. To those who sense and feel that evil and sin corrupts our world, to those who sense and all the injustice that Amos has spoken about, that our own evil contributes to the evil and injustice in this world, the curse of this world, he says, do you know there will be restoration and abundance and I can offer it to you. He says, the days are coming when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And the idea is that as the guy is going along, trying to plant the field, as one does in this motion, um, uh, you, the, the guy's coming up behind them, already collect, still collecting the produce from the previous harvest. And they're kind of being overtaken. The, the, the normal harvest cycles are, are, are sort of are wonderfully out of kilter. There is so much on offer. And the, and the ground, uh, the work that we do, which is so cursed and hard and broken, is restored and made fruitful and abundant. So no longer is there frustration. I will rebuild the ruined cities and, and, they, and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. It won't be fruitless and frustrating, but fruitful and joyous. And those who know... And those of us who know that our, you know, my, my own sin contributes as much to the uh, detriment of our working environments uh, uh, as anyone else's, I'm sure you know it too in your own fields. And he's saying, look, that won't be the case anymore. And lastly, in verse 15, to those who sense before the Lord as he sifts them and they know the uncertainty and the precariousness that that creates. Do you know that feeling, Lord, you are sifting me and I... I sometimes, I'm so troubled. Do, where do I really stand with you? He says there will come the most glorious assurance. 
I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. No longer will there be that uncertainty of sin in a new creation and a new earth with the Lord. He says, look, for those of you who can respond to the sifting, those of you whose hearts are soft and sensitive and say, look, I know the cloak is meaningless. I don't know why I have it, but I do. But let's get rid of it. He says, to those of you who sense that in themselves, I can make you sure and assured of your place in my new heaven, my new earth, through my son, the greater David, the one who will dwell amongst his people, who will be of them and lead them, and lead them into this restored, wonderful picture of a promised world of righteousness and justice and God dwelling with his people. It's a great picture that Amos ends with, isn't it? The summary, the bottom line, uh, the take-home points of the report. Look, who is it, Amos, who's going to face this? Well, we all face this sifting. He says, none of you can escape. And those of you who are sensitive to it, those of you who sense God's work in them, who sense God just pulling away the layers, the cloaks, the religion, the politics, the background, the heritage, the things we rely on, the social standing, whatever it is, he says, those of you in that moment... If you can begin to glimpse what I can do in and through my son in your life, there is this promised world before us. Two questions to take away, to ponder this week. Come back to them. At some point this week, ask yourself, what, am, I, am I hiding under a cloak? Am I hiding under a cloak of religion? Am I hiding under a cloak of doing the right things? Am I hiding under a cloak of other things, whatever it may be, even living in Manchester? And do I sense, as God does that sifting work, do I sense where I stand truly before him and what he is offering in his son? Do I sense where he is taking those who will respond to him? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the book of Amos. Your word is life-giving to us. Thank you for all it has shown us as it has exposed our hearts. And Lord, as we've thought of your sifting judgments, Lord, it brings us to you afresh, aware of how we have nothing to stand before you. But I pray, Lord, in that moment, you would grant us the spiritual insight to see your son, to see his coming, his life, death, resurrection in our place. And Lord, his leading, his offer of a world made right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A surprising ending to the book of Amos.